startling. Happy Halloween, creeps. Happy Halloween, y'all. I think it's... Well, it's, well, it's, it's tomorrow. tomorrow. But yeah, but still. Halloween! Yay! Alright. <laughs> Anything exciting happened this week? Um, yeah, but I can't talk about it. Because it's a work thing. Oh, yeah, well. But, I mean, when you don't have too much going on, work things kind of, like, make you all a tither. You know? <laughs> it's like, ooh, something new and out of the routine. <laughs> yeah, we've, we're leading a pretty boring life right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, our number one fan is here with us. Pork chop. Yep. The chop. Yeah. Uh, she just turned three in September. Yeah. Or maybe October. I don't know. She's one of our two cats. Um, I was not a cat person ever. And then when I lived in Canada, we found these lovely little kittens in the warehouse where I worked. And I said, no, thank you. And then I agreed to babysit one of them for a week. And then the person just never took her back. So pork chop is our cat, and yeah. and she flew down to Texas as well, like a champ. Yeah, she was a good girl. Yeah, now she is large. And then our other cat, Max. We found him in my work parking lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When was that? In March. That was in March. Uh, that so we were gonna take her to the vet and then take her to the ASPCA. Take him. Him. Sorry. And um, they turned her down because him. of cr him, cr him, <laughs> because of uh, COVID. And yeah, literally that day, because yeah, I took him to the to the ASPCA and I was like, "Hey, found this cat. Um, we don't have room for him." And they were like, "Oh, just today we shut down everything because of Corona." So now we have two cats. Yeah. And that's your cat information for this week. So <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> um, right. So it's my story first this week. And I have just titled it Halloween. Cool. My sources are insider.com, Reader's Digest, WBOC.com, Medium.com, a New York Times article from 1981. An LA Times article that was from like 1955 or something and then revisited later. The Vintage Woman magazine and Vice.com. So I'm going to ease us into this with a few Halloween facts. Halloween 1926 was the day that Houdini died. Uh, Halloween 1938 was the day when Orson Welles did his War of the Worlds prank in, I think, like, New Jersey or something. Did you ever hear about this? No. So the War of the Worlds, like that movie with Tom Cruise, which I've never actually seen. Uh, I've also never really read the story. Anyway, he wrote this, Orson Welles wrote this, um, but I don't think he released it as a book. He did uh, a mock, like, breaking news report on the radio in 1938 when... The radio was the only media anybody had. So all these like farmers in New Jersey were sitting there and it's like, this just in, 
the aliens have invaded from Mars and all this shit. So people were literally like, grab your gun, Skeet, we gotta go. And like, they thought the world was ending. Mm-hmm. This is like the end of the world. It's happening. Where was this? I think New Jersey. Dope. Yeah. And um, also he would have sounded a little different. Well, the, the civilians. Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Anyway, so that was 1938. I would like to read more into it. I just remember seeing something about a documentary or something in a documentary about it years ago. Uh-huh. And just thinking like, Jesus Christ, that guy really scared the shit out of a lot of people. (laughs) That's great. Well, I mean, what were some of the repercussions of that prank? I don't know, but I'm sure there were plenty. Uh. But Orson Welles wrote like 1984 and stuff, right? That's the same. And Animal Farm. Animal Farm, yeah. I think that's the same person. Yeah. Animal Farm was a really good book. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. 1984, it was very sad for me. I really enjoyed it, but it's really grim. hitting home now. Yeah, it's grim <laughs> and you feel kind of bad for the main character. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a really depressing book. Yeah. But now all I can think of with Amazon is that book. Yeah. I'm like, fair enough. It's like 36 years later. Mm-hmm. But Very this relevant. shit is coming through, coming through now. Yeah. Anyway, enough of that depressing talk. 1955, Marilyn Daman or Daman goes grocery shop grocery shopping with her two kids, two-year-old Stephen and seven-month-old Pamela. So, like any good parent, she leaves them outside the shop, telling Stephen to be a good two-year-old and look after Pamela. What? I know. I mean, after the first one, they practically raise themselves. Yeah, right? I guess. So, believe it or not, the kids were not there. When she came back out of the store. Shocker. Yeah. So they found Pamela still in a stroller, not too far from the shop. But poor Stephen was never seen again. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, he was two years old, though. So he was probably thinking, best be on my way. I've been on this earth long enough now. Time to settle down on my own and think about starting a family. <laughs> new year, new me and all that. Um. Yeah, poor guy. Never saw you again. That sucks. Um, poor baby people things were just so different back then (laughs) yeah it's like here steven hold this cigarette while i go into the store (laughs) (laughs) or go to the store and get me cigarettes yeah um i used to have to do that (laughs) mom would write me a note to go down to uh or nanny or whoever they'd write me a note i can't remember the the dude's name he's like this grumpy old man that owned the shop like mick or something and i would go down and get like the cigarettes and then run back up the road was great 1963 halloween night um there's an ice skating exhibition on somewhere okay (laughs) i don't have the (laughs) location i didn't write it down but uh, a concession stand actually had a gas leak yeah and it caused an explosion right before the end of the final routine at 11 p.m so the place was jam-packed and the whole floor caved in. Damn. Yeah, so caused 74 deaths and injured 400 people. Damn. Yeah, so that was 1963. I've got a big jump here in the years, but I think it's because my main stories are in between these years. So 2005, 
the 25th of October, right? Frederica, Delaware. A woman takes her own life by hanging herself in a tree where she stays suspended 15 feet in the air in full view of people driving past on their way to work and everything. She stayed there until almost 11 a.m. the next day because people just assumed that she was a Halloween decoration. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, so she was on... God, like God knows how many hundreds, maybe thousands of people drove past her, mm-hmm. walked past her, until somebody finally said, "Oh, this looks this is a little not a too drill. real." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In 2012, Halloween night, a marine dressed in a tutu saw a man dressed up as a disabled veteran and didn't appreciate the dark humor, so he attacked him. The man was dressed in an army uniform for Halloween. But the wheelchair was not a part of the costume. What the fuck, Tutu man? <laughs> yeah, he just flipped out and assumed that this guy was like, this is going to be hilarious. I'll get my uncle's wheelchair for the night. No, this man just beat up a disabled person. <gasps> That's insane. Yeah. Charges were filed. 2017, mid-September. A person contacts Greene County Police Department in Tennessee to report a decapitated body in their neighbor's driveway. Turns out the neighbor was just one of us and started decorating nice and early. (laughs) (laughs) The police department's Facebook page read, Do not call 911 reporting a dead body. Instead, congratulate the homeowner on a great display. (laughs) yeah so that was just a few random halloween crime facts so this this next story i actually found really interesting we don't know how true any of it really is but it's like a mad coincidence at the very least 1981 new york city ronald sisman 39 invites his girlfriend elizabeth platzman 20 over to his place for a photo shoot now the papers called her his girlfriend. I don't know how, like, you know, deep this relationship went or anything like that. Yeah, like, is it normal for a boyfriend to stage a photo shoot for his girlfriend? Yeah, and also there's, like, an almost 20-year age gap, too. Yeah. So maybe there was, like, some, like, maybe they were just hooking up. I don't know. But anyway, the two are found the next day severely beaten and shot execution style. The apartment had been ransacked. No sign of forced entry, but people suggest trick-or-treaters or just someone known to the couple. It was Halloween night. Mm-hmm. So they hear a knock on the door. They're going to open it and be like, yeah. take this candy or, or maybe fuck off, the, children. <laughs> maybe it was the girl's or the dude's actual wife or boyfriend. I mean, yeah, like possibly. I don't think I don't think he was. Uh, he wasn't known to have a, uh, any other relationships, though. There was a few weird things about this. Apart from the fact that there was no forced entry or anything. The victim's driver's licenses and a gun among were among the stolen items. Random fact, in 1980, an actress, Melanie Haller, accused Mr. Sisman of trying to force her to take drugs. So that's just a little bit of background on Mr. Sisman. Doesn't seem like the most savory of characters. He is if you're a cannibal. Oh! No, that was awful. <laughs> Um, Police never solved the case, but they received a call from someone saying that he had heard the prediction of this murder weeks prior to it actually happening. 
The informant told police that the person had described it eerily well. The person was none other than Mr. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. What? Sitting in his jail cell, he tells his one of his prison mates, I don't mm. fucking know, all about this murder that's about to take place. So he famously told the story of how, a little background on the son of Sam. He famously told the story of how his, the neighbor's dog made him kill six people and injure seven others. But another version of his story was that he didn't act alone or of his own accord and that he was actually being used as a puppet by a satanic cult. So he just started spewing out like, oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. But that satanic cult thing kind of comes into play here. So according to Berkowitz, Ronald Sisman had been hired by the cult to record a snuff film of one of the Son of Sam killings. But he wasn't aware of this until he saw it all unfold before his camera. He was just hired by supposedly random people. They were like, be on this block at this time, get your camera rolling, we're going to, you know, whatever. But I guess maybe he had accepted money beforehand because basically they had each other over a barrel. He couldn't give the tape to the police because he had such a strong involvement in it. And the cult had also threatened that they would just kill him. Like, they had seen what he could do. Anyway, after rumors that he was in trouble for dealing drugs, or that he owed a drug dealer or maybe the business with Melanie Haller, the cult decided he was just too much of a loose cannon and decided to get rid of them altogether. They doubled up and made the most of it by killing them in a Halloween ritual, according to Berkowitz. After the ritual... They would kill the couple and remove any and all incriminating evidence, including the tapes that Sisman supposedly had in his apartment. I think the police were sceptical of this at first, but when they spoke to Berkowitz, he was able to describe the apartment down to a T and knew a lot of information about the case. The fact that the IDs were stolen only supported Berkowitz's claims as apparently this is a cult thing, according, you know, according to what we know about cults in 1981. Yeah. Um, apparently the police even went as far as trying to charge Berkowitz for his involvement in the murders, but there was just no physical evidence. He just had all this random fucking information. And to this day, no one has ever been charged for that crime. That's crazy. Yeah, right? For me, it was like, hold on a minute. Yeah. Like, maybe there was a cult involved or you know what I mean like yeah. something like or maybe there was a satanic dog <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this dog knew a lot more than he was letting on yeah but it, the other thing was like because we've had you know not lately for me personally anyway but I remember like being in school you would like someone would send you a link and it would be to this like horrible video of like someone getting killed or something and you know, whatever. I always just assume, like, oh, this is a thing of the internet. But maybe, you know, way back when, like, there was, like, some dodgy place where you would go and buy these, like, bootleg VHS. Of snuff. Yeah, like, snuff films and, like, because I know that there was, like, odd, like, porn and stuff, like, back in the, like, weird trucker stuff going on and stuff. Yeah. So maybe. Anyway, so this one's called The Trick or Treat Murders. But... There's also several other trick-or-treat murders because it's such a juicy name for a Halloween murder. Kind of like the Valentine Valentine's Day massacre? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. See, I'm smart. 
<laughs> so October 31st, 1957, Sun Valley, California. A little bit after 11 p.m., Peter and Betty Fabiano and Betty's two children from a previous marriage are turning in after spending the night handing out sweets to trick-or-treaters when they hear the doorbell ring once more. First of all, let me just say, I've been on either side of trick-or-treat, you know, the mm -hmm. one going to the houses for candy till I was a teenager. Yeah. Possibly the early 20s. <laughs> and the one giving it to, you know, giving the kids the yeah. candy or whatever. I far more enjoy I enjoy far more the giving of the candy. Really? I fucking love it because it's like the kids are you get to see like the little kids costumes. Yeah. And like the evolution of costume. <laughs> you know, like you can see like what's hot right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, oh okay, this obviously comes from a cartoon that's on T V right now or this dude just wanted to be a vampire. You yeah. know? Yeah. I mean like the cliche at home like i was the cliche we would just get black garbage bags put over our head with a hole cut out and then we were witches what yeah that was our halloween costume like a, a few years i have questions wasn't that hot no it's always cold around this time in ireland oh know? okay because I can't imagine wearing a garbage bag in Texas in October. It's still fucking hot. Yeah, no, you would die. Um, the other one was, I don't know if I ever actually got this, but... How old are you? Teenager? <laughs> yeah, I was about 24. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, like, quite small. Like, it was some of my first memories of trick-or-treating was in a fucking plastic bag. That's so sad. Oh, we had a great time. <laughs> But yeah, there was that and also my granddad was a postman. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of the like leftover post bags, like, you know, those big, I guess you would have had burlap sacks. We had like, they were the same as like the bags that we would get coal in. Okay. But it said like on post, like the name of the postal company on it. Uh huh. So granny would just hand those bags to kids and be like, there you go, you're a postman, go. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> go get candy yeah. leave me alone <laughs> <laughs> pretty much anyway so doorbell rings right peter fabiano goes down and he's pissed off because he was either just getting into bed or he just had to get out of bed mm -hmm. to go answer the door again and his wife betty hears him say it's a little late for this isn't it <laughs> i'm assuming that's, yeah, that's passive aggressive comment yeah. Standing in front of him, this trick-or-treater is taller than most, dressed in blue jeans and a khaki men's jacket and red gloves, face painted poorly, wearing a domino mask. I googled what a domino mask is. It's what, like, Robin used to wear from Batman and Robin? Like, the ones that just cover, like, the old-fashioned burglar masks that just cover the eyes? Yeah. Anyway, this person raises a brown paper lunch bag and answers in a voice that sounds like a man impersonating a woman. No. Inside the bag is a thirty-eight Smith & Wesson revolver. Mr. Fabiano is shot in the chest and collapses at his own front door. Betty, after hearing all this, rushes to him frantically. And her daughter, Judy, who was 15 at the time, calls the police. 
Peter is rushed to hospital, but dies from his injury. Now, Peter Fabiano was 35 at the time. He was an ex-Marine who served in World War II, and he was also a hairdresser who owned two successful salons in the San Fernando Valley. Papers speculated that it seemed like a gang-style assassination, but when police looked into his background, other than a misdemeanor charge for working as a bookie in 1948, his record was as clean as a whistle. So Peter's life looked picture-perfect from the outside, loving wife, uh, kids, house, his successful like double business thing going on, the works. So we'll leave him there for now. Goldeen Well, Pizer. he's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Goldeen Pizer. First of all, what a cool name. Yeah. Goldeen. Is it for a dude or a chick? Uh, it's a lady. Mm, sick. Yeah, so she was 42, described as bookish and matronly. Bookish? Yeah. Oh, bookish. It's like she... Basically, she wears glasses. Yeah, and like she looked matronly. It was the 1957s media's way of saying like, well, she's not much of a looker. Like Mrs. Trunchbull, you could describe her as yeah, exactly matronly, <laughs> patronly, maybe. Um, but like I've actually seen a picture of her, and to me, she just looks like a regular 19 or 1950s lady. Yeah. So, I just thought they were kind of harsh like ways to describe her anyway she probably had opinions and that's why she <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah described her as such anyway she was a lab assistant at a children's hospital and a divorcee she shot peter because she believed him to be a wife abusing drug dealing fiend who was quote an evil man who wanted to destroy all people old people all people oh <laughs> she had an intense hatred for this man and was trying to free Betty from his reign. What? She had never actually met either Peter or Betty, but had been to one of his salons uh, several times. She burned the clothes she was wearing that night, but didn't know what to do with the gun, which she had bought legitimately. So she rented a locker in an L.A. department store the next day and left it there. So again, it was, you know, the late 50s. This is a thing that people used to do. While being questioned by police, Betty Fabiano, Peter's wife, couldn't think of anyone who would do this to her husband. They had recently gone through a bit of a rough patch, according to the papers, and Betty had gone to stay at a friend's house for a while. This brings us to Joan Rabble, or Rabel. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I'm just going to call her Rabel. Uh, she was 40, a freelance photographer, and a friend of the Fabianos, she had spent some time traveling back and forth to uh, University of Honolulu, taking writing classes. She was also divorced and had worked in one of Peter's salons, and she was a lesbian. Mm. But because this is 1957, this is all just heavily hinted at in 1957 jargon. Nobody has actually come out and said any of these people were gay straight or bisexual or anything like that it's pretty heavy speculation one of the words that was used to describe their relationships together mm -hmm. um was just abnormal between the two ladies the two ladies mm -hmm. yeah or i guess like any lesbian or gay goings on was yeah. just marked as an abnormal relationship in the media right okay 
So Betty reportedly told police that her and Peter's troubles had been resolved under the circumstances that she stopped talking to Joan Rabble. Oh. Yeah. So police well, bring... fuck that. <laughs> Sisters before misters. Yeah, but if they were cheating on them... <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this leads uh, police to bring Joan in for questioning, but she's released due to lack of evidence. However, it is shortly after this that they just happened to go looking in a certain locker in an L.A. department store. I don't know where. Well, so this, I tried, like, really hard to find, like, why they did this. Yeah. But I couldn't. So I'm assuming that Rabble maybe said, oh, I had nothing to do with this, but I happen to know that this Goldine Pizer lady hid her gun down here. So anyway, police bring in Goldine then, and she just tells them everything. Mm. it's not actually said anywhere but it is heavily hinted at that Rabble fell in love with Betty and some articles even go as far as to say the reason Betty and Peter had their little break or their troubles or whatever was because of this abnormal relationship between the two women so Goldine is on record as saying that her and Rabble were coffee clutch friends which I had to look up because I had never heard this expression it just means that they are friends who would meet up and chat over coffee. Okay. So Coffee clutch? Coffee clutch friends, yeah. But during her testimony, she implied that um, she was actually madly in love with her and that their relationship was much deeper than just coffee and gossip. Oh. But it's also said that she never came out and said, I'm in love with her. Yeah. Um. So... A lot of thoughts are like, well, maybe her lawyer just said, lean on this, you know, make out like, you know, that you are madly in love with her. She couldn't come right out and say it, that they were lesbians in her court documents, assuming that's because she would run the risk of being forced into some sort of asylum. Yeah. Because that's what happened back then. Yeah. She told one of three court appointed psychiatrists, quote, I had no motive personally. Whatever motive I had was to please Joan. I was always easily influenced. I have been impressionable and always trusting. So, according to her, Rabble filled, filled Goldine's head with all these claims, which she had said that she only knew because Betty had confided in her. Yeah. Like, so Rabble was saying, uh, you know, no, this is true. Like, this is exactly what Betty told me. So she said, quote, Mr. Fabiano was a vile, evil man, a man who destroyed everything around him. She told me that he mistreated his wife and that he was dealing narcotics. Well, that's interesting because, like, you know, I'm taking you at face level that Rabble never met the guy. Oh, no, no, no. Rabble was a friend. Rabble was the friend of the Fabianos. It's Goldine that never met him. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But this is what she was telling Goldine. Mm. So she's telling Goldine, no, 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 my friend Betty told me all this horrible shit like we need to save her oh and goldine is like oh my god yeah like that's exactly what we'll do we'll kill him wow they'll never be able to trace it back because i don't know him wow yeah meanwhile goldine thinks rabble loves her and rabble is in love with betty supposedly that's crazy. so it's like this lesbian triangle yeah 
That's pretty Or <laughs> it might just be that she didn't like this man and she was trying to help her friend though. I'm going for the lesbian thing because it's more juicy, yeah. you know? Well, no, it just seems more... Plausible. Yeah. Yeah. So, either way, Rabble manipulated Goldin. She gave her the money to go and buy the gun and then arranged to borrow a car from another random friend that didn't know anybody in between. And it was Rabble who either sent Goldin to the salon or brought her to the Fabiano's actual residence to do, like, little stakeouts. So, you know, she would definitely recognize Peter Fabiano Yeah. when the time came. So on Halloween night, they sat outside the Fabiano residence for hours. Goldine in her makeup and man's costume, that's mm-hmm. what they called it, waiting for the lights to go out. And once they did, Rabble said, all right, go do it. Very plain. <laughs> that's wild, man. Yeah. So as soon as Goldine did the deed, she ran back to the car. Rabble kissed her and told her thank you. Then they drove off to burn the clothes and returned the car to the owner. Both women pleaded innocent. Goldeen by reason of insanity. One of the psychiatrists writing, the only thought that she had was that she had saved her friend, Joan Rabble, from an evil person. So I guess Joan was telling Goldeen, no, he's going to come for me next. Wow. So they were charged with... First degree murder. Murder. They were charged with first degree murder. <laughs> All right, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> they were charged with first degree murder, but with a plea deal, it was reduced to second degree and they were given five to life. Goldeen was released eventually and was made an officer of the Miracle Mile chapter of the Professional Women's Club in 1971. Who is this? Goldeen. Goldeen. Oh. The one who shot him. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the Professional Women's Club really is. But either way, she was an officer of the Miracle Mile chapter. Um, and she lived until 1998. She wow. died at, yeah, she was 81 when she died. Any pictures? Uh, there's like one or two shitty pictures, but yeah, I'll show you. Okay. Uh, they're all like photocopies of the 1957 papers. There's absolutely no information on Rabble after she was charged. She was seen leaving the courtroom in good spirits, smiling in the picture from the LA Times, and then just gone with the wind. So, Betty Fabiano, she didn't get charged for anything? I'm coming to Betty. Oh. Um, But yeah, anyway, so I reckon she changed her name either while she was in prison or just after she was released, but she literally vanished. Mm -hmm. No record of her anywhere. Betty Fabiano went on with her life and died at the age of 83, I think. It's either 81 or 83. I might have gotten those mixed up between her and Goldin um, in 1999. And Vice speculates at the end of their article, and I was thinking the very same things myself. Were Betty and Joan really in love with each other? Did Betty have something to do with the murder? Did Joan agree to serve time because Betty had kids that she couldn't leave? And did they ever reconnect? If they really were lovers, if Peter was a horrible abuser, I sincerely hope they were able to continue their relationship and I sincerely hope Goldie knew and was just helping out her friends. In my Hollywood version of this, that's what I'm thinking, you know what I mean? Goldie was never in love with Joan, 
but Joan and Betty really were in a relationship. Because of the times all this happened in, they knew this was the only way that they could ever actually be together. So I'm really hoping that Joan Rabble was able to change her name and then maybe become just a very close friend of Betty. You know, I think... I mean, both of them seem... Like, they both seem, like, plausible because just as easy as you can get thrown into the hospital for hysteria, you know, you're living in a time when your husband can throw you in for anything. So if he really was an abuser, then all odds are against the woman. Oh, yeah. And then... You can also argue that they were in a triangle because probably if I was younger, I'd be like, oh, fuck, yeah, I'll, I'll, kill, yeah, I'll him. kill him. I'll kill him. Yeah, you know? absolutely. If he's a, like if he's if a piece he really of shit. was this animal that they portrayed him as. Now that I'm building a life, then I probably wouldn't be so keen to do that unless you were my number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, hopefully it was just, you know, three really good friends helping each other out. Uh, anyway, moving on. This is the last one for me. That was a really good story. I like that. Yeah, I liked it too. Yeah. Well, how long were they away for? Um, it doesn't. I didn't find out, but like it was five years between five and twenty-five years. Um, but like that, it said that she was made an officer of the Miracle Mile chapter. Uh, Golding was in 1971. So I'm assuming that meant that she had been released somewhere in like, you know, the, like that's barely a decade after mm-hmm. she had been put in prison, you know? Yeah. How how old were they? Joan was 40. Goldine, I think, was 42. And um, Betty was 39. I think it was a love triangle. I hope so. Anyway. This one is the real life Candyman, not Dean Coral, though. Mm. But still in Texas. Oh, no shit. October 31st, 1974, Deer Park, Texas. About 36 minutes from where we're sitting right now. Kids are out trick-or-treating and having a great time. Dean Coral had been killed the year before, so nothing to worry about. Sick. Timothy and Elizabeth O'Brien aged eight and five, are out with their little neighbor buddy, being chaperoned by their dads, Ronald O'Brien and Jim Bates. They arrive at a house that's in total darkness, but they try knocking anyway, hoping to get maximum haul. Nice. But there's no answer, so they just run on to the next potential treasure trove. Ronald hangs back, just to make sure, because he thinks he hears something maybe in there, while Jim goes on with the kids. So Ronnie and Jim are friends? Well, they're like dads in the neighborhood, you know what I mean? So they're just chaperoning like their kids, yeah. That's wholesome. So anyway, Ronnie holds back. Ronnie, Ronald holds back. Mm-hmm. Jim goes on with the kids. And Ronald catches up a few minutes later. There actually was somebody in the house after all. And it's a good thing he hung, hung back because they gave them some pixie sticks. Oh, nice. Yeah, for each of the kids. Big ones too. Oh, no. Oh, no. I know where this is going. So there's a large pixie sticks too. He'd even gotten an extra one, which he gave to another 10-year-old boy that they passed up on the way home because they knew each other from church. 
Being the good dad that he was, Ronald allowed Timothy to have one treat from his hall before bed. He picked the pixie stick, but the sugar was all stuck in the straw, so his dad helped get it out. Super dad. But Timothy said it tasted bitter and drank some Kool-Aid to wash it down. Timothy was dead within the hour. He was rushed to hospital, but it was too late. The chief medical examiner of Harris County at the time said that a call to the morgue revealed that there was a scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth. Cyanide. Cyanide. The autopsy proved that Timothy had ingested enough cyanide to kill two people, and tests later found that the top two inches of the pixie sticks had been packed with the poison. The pixie sticks had been opened and resealed with staples. So, like, it wasn't even a great attempt to hide the fact that they had been open. Police rushed to the other children's houses. The Harris County prosecutor at the time was Mike Hinton. And he said, that's what saved another boy's life that night. They found him in bed with the sweet in his hand. But he wasn't strong enough to undo the staples. Oh. Yeah. So he literally was, like, so close to being murdered as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So they take Ronald back to the neighborhood where he was given these pixie sticks from, but he just couldn't find the house and said he, had, he, he and said he had never even seen the face of the person. They just opened the door, he took the candy, and that was it. It was too dark to see anything else. Like, the house had no lights on or anything. They took him out again a few days later, and this time they were, quote, pretty firm with him. So I think the police were like, look, this is bullshit. You have to go. We, ha- we need to find this house. Like, your son is dead. This time he remembered the house, but the man who lived there wasn't home. He was at work, so the police went to Houston's Hobby Airport and arrested him in front of all his colleagues, made a big song and dance, because I'm sure at the time this was in every fucking newspaper, on every Mm. radio station, Mm -hmm. TV station. So they'd caught their candy man. Turns out they didn't. This guy was actually working Halloween night, and his wife and daughter had been at home dealing with the trick-or-treaters but they ran out of candy too early so they just turned off all the lights so nobody else would you know come looking for candy that they didn't have that reminds me of the stunt the police pulled in the outsider when he um when he got arrested at his little league oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly because they were like they need the you know we are the crimes fighters whatever yeah so anyway ronald the loving father had written a song about Jesus and Timothy joining the Lord in heaven and got really pissed off with his family because they didn't want to stay up late on the night of the kid's funeral to see his song being broadcast on the local TV. It was being sung by some like gospel choir, I think. So his priority was his song, not his son. Detectives soon found that Ronald had recently taken out insurance policies on both of his children for $10,000 each and then a further $20,000 each in September of that year. They already knew that he was in debt of over $100,000. Again, 1974. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So Ronald had actually called his insurance company at 9 a.m. on All Saints Day, which is November 1st which is the day after his son had died. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was actually like probably the same day on his son's death certificate, you know, by yeah. the time they got to the hospital and all. With this information, they were able to obtain a warrant to search his house 
where they found scissors with plastic residue on the blade, similar to the plastic from the pixie sticks. This was all they found, but it was enough to keep the investigation going. Ronald was taking classes in a local community college, and apparently he would ask his professor questions like, what's more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison? I don't know what type of classes these were, but those kind of questions were pretty out there regardless, like, unless it was a poisons class. Yeah. (laughs) And that was the quote from the professor, cyanide or another type of poison. (laughs) Another witness who worked for a chemical company in Houston said he remembered a man coming in to buy cyanide, but left when he found out the smallest amount he could buy was five pounds. And that was just far too much. So the witness couldn't identify Ronald as the customer, but he did remember that the person was wearing a beige or blue smock. Ronald was an optician. This was his uniform. They still had no solid evidence, however, and Hinton, the Harris County prosecutor, said that O'Brien just seemed to, like, relish the attention. He seemed to think that even... um, Or he seemed to think that he was even relishing the fact that the trial was taking so long. Like, all the attention was on him, you know? This was, like, his time to shine kind of thing. He maintained his innocence, entering a non-guilty plea, but his own family, friends, and co-workers all testified against him. On June 3rd, 1975, after just 46 minutes, the jury returned with a guilty verdict, one charge of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. An hour later, it was decided that he would be executed by electric chair. He still maintained his innocence, however, and tried every avenue of appeal for 10 years, but they were all turned down. By 1984, the US Supreme Court had ruled the electric chair as a cruel and unusual punishment, so he received the lethal injection on March 31st, 1984. 300 people gathered outside with some shouting trick-or-treat and throwing candy at the anti-death penalty protesters. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) According to the main article I used for this, there has not been a single case where a child has actually died after consuming contaminated Halloween treats ever since this um, one incident. In 2000, a man in Minneapolis was charged with putting needles in the Snickers bars he was handing out to trick-or-treaters but the only victim was one teenager who got a little prick from the hidden needle. So, all in all, I think go out, go trick-or-treating, and just don't eat anything that looks like it has been stapled back together. But otherwise, you should be good. So anyway, there's your Halloween true crime bits. Awesome. And yes, I'm sure there's plenty more things that happened on other Halloweens, These are just some that I found that I thought were pretty interesting. Yeah, and we'll cover them next year. Yeah, exactly. There's always more Halloweens. I hope. (laughs) So I guess it's my turn now. And I want to preface this segment of our podcast to encourage you to read this book. If you want to read about the methods that I left out, because I did leave out some. Uh, There are tons, and the author goes into depth about each one. I just like to take out the juicy bits. <laughs> okay. Um, and again, the book is is called The Book of Execution, an Encyclopedia of Methods of Judicial Execution by Jeffrey Abbott. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Abbott, A-B-B-O-T-T. 
So we're going for more execution methods today. Yeah. Cool. So I want to finish up this trilogy, as it were. So where were we? All right. We were at the firing squad. So the firing squad. Um, just briefly, choice of weapons varies, ranging from pistols to rifles, submachine guns, you know. It can be one person or it can be a group. They can be shot in the front or from behind, depending on where you're, you know, what part of the world you're in. Uh, the target, what? No, just the way you phrase that. I, I'm just a child, <laughs> basically. Oh, I see where you're going. I see where you're going with this. Uh, target can be in the head or in the chest. Distance also varies. Uh, if firing a pistol from inches away from the head, it actually can destroy, it will destroy the vital medulla, which is a central, which is a, the central, which are the central parts of the brain. Um, whenever I see medulla, I think of medulla oblongata. Yeah, yeah. From Waterboy. Oh. <laughs> the medulla oblongata. Yeah. Rifle bullets fired at the chest can rupture the heart and lungs, causing death by hemorrhage. In America, firing squad has also been used. The blank was introduced in order to salve the consciences, consciences of the squad members because like squad members wanted to believe that he or she personally, well, he, let's be real, was not responsible for the death, death of the condemned. So that's why the blank was introduced. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah, we learned all about it because um, that's how the British killed most of the Irish rebels after the 1916 rising. Mm. All right. So the next one that we'll touch on is called is called being flayed alive. Being filleted alive. Flayed. <laughs> flayed. I mean, I I guess it. It can be the same thing if, you know, if you're being messy about it, you're just like messy fillet, filleted. Anyways, so dating or in this, I'm going to be reading out of the book here. Dating from at least the second century BC, it was practiced not only in Turkey against pirates operating off of that nation's seaboard, but also in China and other eastern countries. Few instances were reported from Europe, one being that of the execution of brothers Jacobo and David Perrin during the persecution of the Waldenses in 1655. It's a lot of material I'm not familiar with. Mm -hmm. Both suffered under the scalpel-like blade as their skins were peeled away Strip by strip, dying as their flesh was laid bodily, oh, bloodily bare. In the same way, the Chamberlain of Count Derucci expired in 1356, while Paolo Garnier of Rorores was the first castrated, then endured the removal of his entire skin while still alive. Jesus Christ, like that's used by. Um there's going to be people like shouting the name at in, at their car radios right now. Um, <laughs> fucking. Or in their jobs. Or in their jobs. In their jobs. cubicles. <laughs> uh, the Lord from uh, Game of Thrones. 
he had the flayed man on his banner. His son was Reek, pretended to be Reek, to earn the trust of like Theon Greyjoy, and then Bolton. I want to say it was Bolton. Oh, was that that sick fuck? Yeah. Oh, he was the bastard man, son of him. I hated that guy. Everybody fucking hated him. Oh, he was Ruined so, so good many at plans. being just a piece of shit. Yeah. I want to say it was Bolton. The bastard of Bolton. Yeah. I hope I'm not wrong. He was the one that kidnapped the... Theon Greyjoy. No, yeah. Him and also took um, the redhead girl as a wife. Um, Sansa. Yeah, Sansa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Poor Sansa. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... Fried to death. Fried to death. Uh, Maccabeus, the eldest. Oh, I'm going to be reading about this particular instance because I feel like if I just describe it to you, I will describe it very flatly where I'm like, oh, yeah, throw him in a vat of oil and, you know, oh, that reminds me. There's going to be some sort of similarities, I guess, like here. Um because there's also like different ways of being hung where like for example there's a way called being uh hanged on the yard arm or just regular hang i mean they're both the same it just depends on where they're being hung from right right um or like death by sword um and here at kiri it's the same thing Hmm. you're someone's dying by a sword it's just one is a name in Japanese and the other ones I guess just death by sword is in English because I'm saying it in English right now yeah you know what I'm saying fried to death okay so this is a story of uh the Maccabees and well the family of the Maccabees which consisted of a mother and her seven sons by Antiochus as penned by Flavius Josephus it's a lot of Ephesus uh <laughs> So anyways, Maccabeus, the eldest, was stripped and racked, being stretched around the circumference of a wheel, his hands being secured above his head and weights tied to his ankles and so stretched round about it that his sinews and entrails break. Jesus. A fire was enkindled and by the flames he was so burned that his bowels appeared, yet his mind unmoved. Then he was taking taken out of the fire and slain alive so he was still alive throughout this whole ordeal do you think that phrase his bowels appeared i think that means that he just shit himself probably or do you think it burned his skin until his entrails came out yeah yeah that's essentially what that means yeah fuck then he was taken from the fire and slain alive his tongue being pulled out of his head and he was then put into the frying pan to the end. Antiochus had devised a novel torture for the third, Makir, who was tied in such a way over a large globe that all his joints were dislocated. Then the skin of his head and face was pulled off, and his tongue was cut out before he too was dispatched in the frying pan. Fucking hell. Aerith, the fifth son, fared little better, 
After being tied head down to a pillar and near enough to a fire to be singed but not burned to death, he was pricked with sharp pointed instruments in most parts of his body, had his tongue torn out with red hot pincers, and was finally thrown into the frying pan. Their mother had been left to the last, I'm guessing in order to watch, uh, but eventually she was ordered to be stripped hung by her hands and cruelly whipped. Her breasts were then cut off before she too was consigned to the bubbling liquids and fried to death. So they all had a really bad time then. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. All right, uh, moving on. Gas chamber. Um, it was, I'll keep this as brief as possible. Um, California traded in the noose for a gas chamber in San Quentin prison in March 1938. The gas chamber was airtight and green and also shaped like an octagon steel cubicle. Uh, Bolted to the floor were two perforated seats. The temperature inside the room had to be kept at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Otherwise, gas would condense on the walls and floor. Between, or I'm sorry, beneath each chair was a bowl and above suspended on a hook was a bag of cheesecloth, which contained sodium cyanide crystals. In the next room, the executioner would mix sulfuric acid in water and he placed it in two one gallon containers. When it was time, um, you know, when, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a lever would get pulled, lowering the bag of pellets to mix with the mixture in the bowls, which was your acid and stuff. The effects were headaches, giddiness, vomiting, hyperventilation, and then eventually, you know, collapsing and dying. And now we'll talk about, um, you know, the obvious one, the uh, Nazis. The first gas that the Nazis experimented with was carbon monoxide. Uh, victims were forced onto a bus under the pretext of going somewhere. Windows were sealed shut and exhaust fumes were piped back into the passenger compartment. This method was deemed too slow and um, they were like, okay, we have to develop this. So um, another method was introduced in their concentration camps. Victims were undressed and herded into a large room with spray heads in the ceiling. Um, so I guess this like gave them like a false sense of comfort because they were like, okay, we're just going to get like hosed down or something. Well, yeah, they were told that they were going in for showers. Yeah. But instead of hot water, they were sprayed with Zyklon B, prussic acid, and it allowed Nazis to kill thousands in only 30 minutes or 5,000 in a single day. Wow. Yeah, like I said, I'm keeping it very yeah, brief. Yeah. There's brief, not brief. There's like <laughs> lots to be said, um, but I'm just giving you like the bare bones of some of these. Uh, the gibbet, I think it's called, or the gibbet. It's a fitted iron cage that was used for sentences of slow deaths, uh, of starvation and exposure. These body cages with inhabitants were hanged on display or hung on display. Uh, the gibbet had spiked stirrups at the feet and an iron bar 
at between the legs at the crotch. So constant discomfort while you were in it. So basically just imagine like a force field around all of your limbs and your entire body is made of iron. Yeah. And that's what a gibbet is. The gridiron. And I wrote in my notes, it's basically a grill <laughs> where condemned or broiled to death. Uh, that were kept in place by the executioner who would use huge iron barbecue forks. Well, it said huge iron forks, but I, in my head, <laughs> barbecue forks. So probably like a pitchfork type thing. Like. Yeah, yeah. The guillotine. Mary Antoinette. That's what you would think, right? What I included in this was um, really interesting things that I hadn't known about it. Because... Like, it it was like a French thing. And there was also, like, predecessors of this thing that I'll talk about later uh, with a kind of different design um, that came from other countries. Anyways, I'll get into it. You'll see what I mean by, wow, that's fucking interesting. Uh, before its invention, invention, being broken by the wheel, uh, beheaded by sword, burnings, hangings, all that stuff were used depending on the sex, the sex of the person and their crime, also their class. Uh, so anyways, Joseph Guillotine decided that this was inefficient and he proposed that only one type of execution was necessary to remove and that, you know, another thing was necessary was to remove human error. So he was like, obviously, you know, we need to design a machine. Yeah, of course. So, right. So... In 1791, he proposed that all people that were condemned to die um, should die the same way. Sex didn't matter. Class didn't matter. Offense didn't matter. They should all die the same way. So in 1791, his, his, his proposition of that was approved. And also his proposition included that he should he should be the one to design a machine that um, would do this in a way that was efficient. So he did with the help of Charles Henry Sanson, who was the lead executioner at the time and a carpenter uh, named Schmidt. That's literally all the information about this carpenter that his name was Schmidt. The guillotine stood eight feet high with a triangular blade that would cut sideways and it was successful. It was efficient and super fast. It was so fast that the crowds that normally gathered at these things were upset at the <laughs> lack of spectacle. Because that's their the highlight of their days. They wanted to see people struggling and fighting. And Correct. Screaming and shit. Uh-huh. They wanted the old ways back. You know. I don't like change. <laughs> Eventually, once it was routinely used, the guillotine became a fashion statement, which <laughs> I was like, what the fuck do you mean? So apparently ladies wore guillotine earrings nice. and brooches. There was also toy guillotines for children. Replicas for adults were made with toy figures of public figures. Like, imagine, like, a Donald Trump <laughs> little figurine inside of a guillotine um, where so when they were, like, the little uh, blade was um, triggered, 
and the little public the I'm sorry the little toy would be beheaded inside was like a little surprise anywhere from like perfume or like like a liqueur oh, inside that's the little really body cool. isn't that interesting yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh another method of execution is gunpowder this was practiced by north american indians in the 18th century after torturing victims they would fill their heads with gunpowder and light them on fire for a noisy and messy explosion wow i know crazy so after they were dead already no, after torturing them. So how would they fill their heads? You think? Like just fill their mouths or something? Yeah. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So like I mentioned before, the predecessor of the guillotine is uh, the Halifax gibbet. Um, it was a lot like the guillotine, but instead of a triangle or an angle blade, it was a square blade. The unique thing about this one is that the blade was kept at the top by a pulley system instead of like uh i think the guillotine was like a triggering mechanism like you would just hit a switch and it would fall yeah whereas this one was kept up by a pulley system and the reason why this is so interesting is because um the end of the rope would be handed to the spectators for them to hold and let go of when it was time to kill the condemned that's the crowd pleaser right there. Isn't yeah. It? It's like, and you fine lady, would you like to do the killing today? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But like, it would be several people holding this rope. Yeah, it was like a group, a collective thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So hanged, hung, hanged. I say hung, but I do think the proper term. I, I think when it comes to actually, like, to this activity, like. It is hanged. It is hanged. Okay. Yeah. Hanged. Hanged alive in chains. Because <laughs> when I say hanged, it sounds so stupid. But see, when I say it with an accent, it sound, I can hear each letter. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, Anyways, so. um, <laughs> the condemned would, would hang <laughs> near um, the place where... Either the murder or robbery that this person was guilty of, um, where it happened. Uh, so they'd hang there until they died. This served as justice so that those who were wronged or affected by said robbery or murder could be satisfied in watching those who had wronged them suffer. And I have a weird story regarding being hanged alive and chains <laughs> <laughs> he was hanged alive as you was yeah <laughs> wait in chain like in chains is in their hands and feet are chained so the way that it it described it here is that there would be a definitely there'd be a chain around the waist sometimes there would be a chain around the neck around the legs it just depend on the flavor of the day but, like, um, they were still hanged with a rope. No, but... just chains. Oh, that's what so I'm So, like, asking. they'd be yeah, suspended yeah. by chains. And they were left up there to starve and die. Oh, I'm sorry. I... Not so to not, not to <laughs> kill immediately. Yeah, wow. Yeah. All right. So, here we go. Unusual case involving hanging alive. 
that dates in, that dates 1383. The victim was an Irish friar who had appeared before Richard II and falsely accused the Duke of Lancaster of treason. Which is supposed, like, as I was reading this book, apparently treason is, like, the worst offense. Oh, yeah. Worse than murder, worse than whatever, you know, stealing. Because it's like you're literally gunning for the king or whoever. Like, you're directly, um, I guess, bitch slapping the king. Yeah. You know, it's like a direct offense to him. So... His punishment was carried out thus, in the words of the historians. <laughs> Lord Holland and Sir Henry Green, knight, came to this friar and putting a chain about his neck, tied the other end about his privy members, and after hanging him up from the ground, laid a stone upon his belly, so that with the weight whereof, and that of his body withal, he was strangled and tormented. So as his very backbone burst in sunder therewith, besides the straining of his privy members, thus with three kinds of tormentings he ended his wretched life. On the morrow after they caused his dead corpse to be drawn about the town, to the end it might appear he had suffered worthily, for his great falsehood and treason. So what it seems like to me is that he was chained by his neck, the, by his neck and um, his penis. His penis? His penis. Wow. And, but so like imagine you're, he's being hung and you look up and all you see his, is his back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they put a stone on his stomach so, like, he'd hung there and, like, the weight of the... would break his back and then yeah. tear off his penis. That's insane. And because that would be the first thing to go, he'd end up, he would end up strangled in the chain. Yeah, yeah. It's very graphic. Thanks, historians. So, just to go on about more hanging, there are different flavors of this, obviously. Sailing ships had yard arms. Like I mentioned before, a wooden cross pieces that mounted... At right angles, high in the main mass, those were called the, the yard arms, and they would hang people on them. There's also sentence to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, which is reserved for the highest crime of treason, which I said before. You'd be hanged just at the brink of death, then brought down, cut open, and disemboweled, castrated, beheaded, they burn your entrails, cut off your limbs, cut your torso in four sections, and then display all of it to see. So it's like a like a step-by-step how-to recipe for being hang-drawn hang drawn and quartered. Yeah, and I think the, the thing with this one in particular mm -hmm. was purely for the public to see this yeah. and go, oh, fuck. Well, I, it, it's the same effect that you, I, I think it's, are you, you mean like it'd be the same effect that of putting uh, pieces of a person's body on like stakes and just lining it along like Yeah, but this was done, shit. like this whole act was done in public view, like. 
Oh, I see what you're saying. It wasn't like carried out in private and then they showed it. But um, well, a lot of these were. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I think it was probably fucking like Braveheart or something. I can't remember. And um, like the hung, drawn and quartered part was like they would send a piece of you to each corner of the realm or something. Mm. But I'm not sure if that was actually what happened true or not yet i don't well i mean who knows because the way that they killed people were very elab was very elaborate yeah but to waste resources on long travel that seems unlikely but like i was saying a lot of this is in public and i think the only one that wasn't in public would be the harakiri because well i'll I'll explain what uh, harakiri literally means belly cutting in japanese Aristocrats and high-ranking officials would catch a case, and to keep dishonor from falling onto their families, they'd commit suicide. They'd dress in a white robe and head on over to a temple, pray, and then undress only to the up until the waist. They'd grab a sword and plunge it onto the left side of their stomach, drag it horizontally to the other, you know, to the right side. Yeah. Turn it and then cut upwards. Jesus. Uh, then the official appointed to oversee all this would decapitate the man. So that's Hirakiri. Uh, the next one is impaled by stakes, a favorite of the Romans. They would have the condemned dig his own grave, stick a stake at the bottom of it. Then the executioners would bind the hands and feet of the person before chucking them in there. And they aim to have the stake pierce the person's chest and sometimes his groin for maximum suffering. Uh, Yeah, so like they aimed like when it hit the stake, you know, like when they landed on the stake that it would pierce where they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Next up. Iron chair. Come on down. Uh, (laughs) So it had spikes at the end of the legs so it could be secured to the ground. It had a compartment underneath the seat of the chair uh, for burning coals. And it basically cooked you ass first. Fuck. Isn't that strange? I didn't write it down, but there was a guy who traveled with an iron, like a collapsible iron chair. And like, I guess whenever he conquered a town or whatever, or if he just run up on a town that he had already conquered and wanted to kill somebody, they'd bust out this, you know, portable chair and secure it to the ground and then just grab somebody and cook them ass first. Jesus. And I'm sure that they had like iron clasps or whatever. And yeah. 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 Uh, the Iron Maiden, made of iron or wood, this lady shaped coffin looking thing. <laughs> uh, it was hollowed out and it had strategically placed spike- spikes inside. The condemned would be forced inside and there was a mechanism that would slowly bring out the spikes to pierce whoever was inside a millimeter at a time. Um, Once like the deed was done and like the spikes were like fully out, uh, there was this I didn't know there was a trap door underneath the Iron Maiden that could be released, allowing the bloody mess to drop down in a shaft that had a system of knives at the end and it would 
basically set to work on the body and turn it into mincemeat. And then it would get flushed into the Rhine. The Rhine River in Germany. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. The next one is called Neil Halling. What? Neil Halling. Neil as in to kneel on your knees. Like. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this was nautical in nature. So in 1710, an English sailor guilty of blasphemy was uh, Neil Hald. Neil Halding? I don't know. But, um, so this Hauled is what it by is. by the knees. Sure. So this is what happened. Um, he was stripped of all his clothes except for a strip of cloth around his loins. He was suspended by blocks and pulleys, and these were fastened to the opposite extremities of the yard arm. And a weight of lead or iron was hung upon his legs to sink him to a competent depth. By this apparatus, he was drawn close up to the yard arm and thence let fall suddenly into the sea, where by hauling the pulleys at the other end of the yard, he was passed under the ship's bottom and after some little time was hoisted up on the other side of the ship. And this, after sufficient intervals of breathing, was repeated two or three times. It should be remembered that the height of the old sailing ships was considerable, the fall in itself resulting in possible injury being sustained on hitting the surface of the sea. I mean, how many times have you ever belly flopped? That shit hurts. And then... To be dragged, half drowned across the hull, which was invariably encrusted by barnacles, limpus, mollusks, and other marine creatures, their shells rasping flesh and muscle off one's bones. Oh, so it wasn't like they were just going willy-nilly through the sea. They were actually being, like, grated against the bottom of the ship. Yes. Fuck. Yes. They were being grated across the bottom of the ship. Yes, that is what happened. I was having visions of like, um, remember Finding Nemo when they're on the turtle's back going through like the mad slipstream mm-hmm. in my head. That's kind of what it looked like, except he was tied by a rope. I was like, this doesn't sound too bad <laughs> so far. Like No, like, and like, I didn't know that like ships collected these sort of sharp things underneath, um, like the bottom of their boats. Yeah, they live on them like, uh, like they would on a rock. Yeah, I didn't know that. But, yeah, so basically he'd be dragged underneath the boat, which I think is very creative. Yeah. Like, who the fuck would have thought that? I mean, who the fuck thinks of all of these things? That's like true. the that's, Iron that's, Maiden. That's true. Like, oh, let us make a coffin, yeah, and have the spikes come out, uh, but only one millimeter at a time. Yeah, it is was yeah. one millimeter at a time. Very precise. Yeah. So, anyways... Lethal injection, which is really a three-in-one injection. You're initially relaxed with sodium thiompentone, then pancuronium bromide that stops your breathing and makes you unconscious, and finally potassium chloride, which stops the heart. Real, like, simple, wrapped up in a bow. But, of course, there was, like, learning curves, I think, one of the longest... Um, execution by lethal injection was 40 minutes. Yikes. Yeah. So, Mazzatello is the next one. So, this was widely employed by uh, 
in 18th and 19th century Italy, probably one of the most brutal methods and required minimal skill on part of the executioner and superhuman acquiescence by the victim. So here it is, folks. The standard procession brought the victim and his confessor onto the scaffold where awaited the black-clad and mass executioner leaning on a long-handled mallet, the massatello. So the, the mallet was the massatello. Okay. After prayers had been said for the salvation of the condemned man's soul, the executioner would move around to stand behind the felon, and after a couple of preliminary swings of the weapon, you know, just to get him warmed up, would bring it down with a crushing force on the victim's head. That done, he would kneel over the crumpled figure on the scaffold boards, producing his knife. He would then proceed to slit the unconscious man's throat. So basically, he would just get crushed to death. So it was like a big cartoon mallet, like. Basically. Yeah, I mean, like, art <laughs> imitates life, right? So, the mill wheel... In, the almost, in almost the same way as the early Christian martyrs were executed by the Romans, like being tied around the circumference of a wheel, which was then propelled over a series of spikes. So during the First World War, Serbs accused of aiding the enemy or of spying were put to death by the Austro-Hungarian troops by being bound to the paddles of a watermill wheel. The wheel was then set in motion, and each time the half-drawn victim surfaced, he became the target for the bayonets of the waiting soldiers. Wow. That's fucking weird, isn't it? It's There's like, a lot oh, going it's like on the guy's like, oh my god, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. He comes out, and he like, breathes fresh air, but then now he's got these assholes with bayonets just going at him. Yeah. You know? And then he goes back in the water again. Uh, this one's fucking gnarly. Nail through the ear. In 1929, when the tyrant Bacha Sachao. 1929? It says, yeah, yeah 1929. Wow. Having deposed King Amanula, ruled the mountainous country of Afghanistan with savage cruelty and torture, he dispatched his rivals in many different ways. Dispatch, that's an interesting way of yeah. saying that. Um, one method was to tie them over a cannon's muzzle and fire the gun. But a more agonizing death he reserved for Ali Ahmed John, Amir of Jalalabad, for he crucified his enemy to the ground and then drove a long nail through his ear and into his brain. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was thinking that, yeah, like a nail through the ear, like anyone could, that, that's no problem. Yeah, but he was. But like, if it was going in that way, <laughs> like I was yeah. thinking, like you would get your ear nailed to a table or something. Yeah. And that's fine, but like, not through the brain. No. So here's a weird one. It's called necklacing. This malignant practice had been widely used by gangs in South Africa during recent years and consists of placing a car tire around the neck of a bound victim and setting it alight. The intense heat of the burning material. The fumes penetrating his lungs and the effect of the molten rubber searing his body bring a slow and horrendous death. Yeah, I remember seeing that on the news once. Like that's, that's insane. Like as in recent times as in 
with the last 20 or 30 years like it's yeah. not a that, yeah that's what I said in recent times yeah uh, and in South Africa all right so pendulum it's a slow way to die and uh, mental torture at the same time why because you get tied down and a sharp crescent shaped blade would hover over you going back and forth at any moment it would descend on you slowly inch by inch once it made contact you would be sliced back and forth and deeper a millimeter at a time. Whoa. Yeah. Was that in one of the Saw movies? Probably. Uh, and, you know, the more common one, or I guess not common, but like, I guess a more obvious one, not as intricate way of dying, uh, death by poison. Okay. When... um. Hemlock is something that you drink to poison yourself. Although I don't know the the what that would be like. I'm guessing it would be the same as a gas chamber. Like the effects of, you know, the effects of being poisoned. You'd probably get dizzy, vomiting, headache. Well, I mean, it all depends on what poison they use, right? Like, what is hemlock? It's a plant. And would they feed it to you? Uh, they'd make you drink it. In like some like a tea or something like. Um, probably. But yeah, like every poison has a different effect, though. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, pressed to death. Just so much pressure from your work. Yeah. You just keep stacking those uh, forms on your desk. Stacking something. <laughs> um. So, basically, being pressed to death is to be remanded to prison. Wait, what? Uh, okay. You'd be laid on your back on the bare floor, naked, unless where decency forbade. That there should be placed a board laid on your body as a great weight of iron as you could bear. And more. And they'd leave you there with no sustenance. um, Except for the first day you'd have like terrible uh, bread. Like, um, like, you know, it's gone off. Oh, it's multigrain. Ah, (laughs) I I hate hate it. (laughs) It's like gone off and you'd only have like three portions. And on the second day you'd have three pulls of water. Like, I guess just three drinks three of water. Swigs, yeah. Um, and that was, and it would be uh, alternately given to you, like one day bread, one day water, one day oh, bread. Okay, okay. Um, until you died or you'd confessed. But basically, that's what being pressed to death is. So it would take days and days, and I think they added weight every day, right? Yeah. Um, There is this one story about being pressed to death uh, from 1586 to a lady named Margaret Clitheroe. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Uh, Was indicted at York for harboring a priest and was pressed to death. A sharp stone as much as a man's fist put under her back. And upon her 
was laid to the quantity of seven or eight hundredths weights, so about 900 pounds. Jesus. Which breaking her ribs caused them to burst forth out of the skin. Fuck. Yeah. But I mean, surely you'd suffocate before any of that, actually. Who fucking knows, man? Either way, it's not good. No, none of this is. So there's something called rack. The rack. And there's different models. Um, the one that I'll touch on um, is it consists of two axles some distance apart between which the victim was laid. The victim being tied to one axle, the wrist to the other. It's because uh, so what would happen um, is the rotating of the axles in opposite directions uh, was achieved by the executioner's assistants inserting poles and sockets in the axles and levering them. The action thereby tightening the ropes and stretching the victim's body, dislocating by degrees the hips and knees, the shoulder blades and elbows, causing excruciating agony. So it might just be the one axle on each side. Yeah, one each, and then they slowly spread you, basically. Mm. Okay. Some of these things are so intricate that it's hard to picture. Yeah, and the fact that the accounts are written in, like, old-timey English and shit doesn't help. No, it doesn't. But, like, your joints being dislocated and all that stuff, it's very common. It seems like, like you read a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I read being drawn by two ships basically they'd like tie your hands together and your feet together and one end is on one ship and the other at the other and both ships would sail away from each other yeah yeah or they just tie it to like two horses horses or bulls or whatever the fuck Mm -hmm. yeah yeah either way not good (laughs) no so there's being sawn in half which is interesting. You can either be sewn in half, like Houdini would sew you in half, well, like saw you in half, or the long ways, like straight down the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the book, it says this problem because you know sometimes this would bring about problems um, because like it, it would take a long time to sew somebody in half. It was hard to hold on to the saw. Because the body itself created a resistance, naturally, because we're not made out of butter. <laughs> um, but anyways. Sharper saws. That's what they need. I think it was, uh, I think the problem was also sawing through the bones. Um, that was kind of hard. Poor you. You know, like having to cut no, bones. I, you I get it, thing. though, because I've sawed through many a thing. And like, sometimes it doesn't matter how sharp the blade is. It's just yeah. going to keep getting cut. So according to the author, this problem was neatly solved by the Chinese, their vi- their victims being secured in a standing position pinned between two wide boards, firmly fixed between stakes, driven deep into the ground. The two executioners, one on each side, would then wield a long two-handled saw, working downwards through the boards, cleaving them and the enclosed victim into two halves. And he added, no lubrication for the saw was necessary. 
I guess the blood lubrication enough, right? Yeah. Yeah, but ima- that's basically what it is. I mean, imagine like an ice cream sandwich. It, you have an ice cream sandwich and you place it so that it's standing. And imagine two people on either side of the sandwich just cutting down the middle from the top to the bottom and you're the ice cream. that's what it is (laughs) all right so the next one is scaphismus scaphismus so when i read this chapter i wrote in highlight all of it as in read all of it oh god so it must have been good (laughs) all right so this this account was written by a historian named sonaris who wrote who who was alive during the 12th century and he's describing uh, the method of execution, scaphismus. The Persians outvie all other barbarians in that in the horrid cruelty of their punishments, they employ tortures which are peculiarly terrible and long drawn out. One of the worst being the boats. Two boats are joined together, one on top of the other with holes cut in them in such a way that only the victim's head, hands, and feet are left outside. Weird. This seems like kind of like the ice cream sandwich thing that I said before. Anyways, within these boats, the man to be punished was placed lying on his back, and the boats were then nailed together with iron bolts. Food is given, and by prodding his eyes, he is forced to eat even against his will. Next, they pour a mixture of milk and honey into the wretched man's mouth until he is filled to the point of nausea, smearing his face, feet, and arms with the same mixture. And by turning the coupled boats about, they arrange that his eyes are always facing the sun. This is repeated every day. The effect being that flies, wasps, and bees, attracted by the sweetness, settle on his face, and all such parts of him as project outside the boats and miserably torment and sting him. Moreover, as he does inside the closed boats, those things which men are bound of necessity to do after eating and drinking, the resulting corruption and putrefaction of the liquid excrements give birth to swarms of worms and different sorts which penetrating inside his clothes eat away his flesh whoa i'm not done thus the victim lying in the boats his flesh rotting away in his own filth is devoured by worms and dies a lingering and horrible death for when the upper boat is removed his body is seen to be all gnawed away and all about his innards is found a multitude of these and the like insects that grow denser every day. Wow. I wonder how long it takes. I don't know, but it sounds like this could take weeks. Yeah, yeah. Now, if that wasn't gross enough for you, <laughs> I present to you sown an animal's belly. So this comes from a Greek writer called Lucian, who was alive 117 to 180 AD. And he writes this in his Dialogues of the Dead. He's describing a penalty 
that is, was inflicted on a Christian martyr, woman specifically. And it reads, We must discover some sort of death, whereby this maiden may endure long-drawn and bitter torment. So let us kill this ass, and afterward cut open its belly, and after removing the inwards, shut up the girl inside in such a way that only her head be left outside. This to prevent her from being entirely suffocated, while the rest of her body be hid within the carcass. Then, when this has been sewn up, let us expose them both to the vultures, a strange meal prepared in a new and strange manner. Now just consider the nature of this torture, I beg you. To begin with, a living woman will be shut up in a dead ass. Then by reason of the heat and the sun, she will be roasted within its belly. Furthermore, she will be tormented by mortal hunger, yet entirely unable to destroy herself. Yet other features of her agony, both from the stench of the dead body as it rots, and the swarm of writhing worms, I say nothing of. Lastly, the vultures that feed on the carcass will rend in pieces the living woman at the same time. The growing of worms gets me. Yeah, it's just... It just doesn't sound like a nice experience to me. Nature, you scary. <laughs> All right. But no, they, like, bury themselves down inside the skin and shit, right? Like, yeah, I guess that's you're right. It's fucking scary. Keeps their eggs safe and then they hatch on the inside. But yeah. <laughs> Spanish donkey. Used by the Spanish army until the last century. Or el burro. El burro. <laughs> the torture consisted of seating the victim, his hands tied behind him, astride a wall, the top of which resembled an inverted V. Weights were then attached to his ankles these being slowly increased until the bodies, the victim's body split into two. So like for the first little portion of this, it's probably not too bad. Maybe some of the guys even liked it, but then it went too far. It went too far, yeah. And lastly, we've come to the conclusion of our trilogy. Thank you for sticking with it. If you did, and if you didn't, whatever. <laughs> You're dead to us. <laughs> All right, and this one, I also wrote all of it, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's because it was just so in-depth. Should it be thought that this method would be... Yeah, you know what? I'm going to read this to you like it's like some sort of crazy dramatic saga. Okay, you ready? Yeah. All right, cool. Should it be thought that this method would be infinitely preferable to that of being executed by a thousand cuts. Second thoughts are earnestly recommended, there being little to choose between them when it came to degrees of suffering. Practice and perfect it, and the Far East, by past masters and the art of delicate butchery, the only instrument required was a finely honed knife. Wielding this with exquisite accuracy, the executioner would remove the victim's eyebrows with the first two strokes and pair the shoulders to the bone with cuts three and four. The breast 
were amputated with the next two strokes, cut seven and eight, then carving away the flesh between hands and elbows. Numbers nine and ten, strokes of the now dripping blade, left the victim bereft of the flesh of his upper arms, while that, covering his thighs, was sliced off with strokes 11 and 12. The calf muscles of each leg now fell away with the application of the next couple of strokes, and then came the one fervently anticipated by the hideously mutilated wretch for far from being the unkindest cut of all, number 15, was the coup de gras, the knife thrust through the heart. Even though he was now butchering a corpse, the executioner continued the ghastly sequence. Cut number 16, remove the head. 17 and 18, detach the hands. 19 and 20, severed the arms and the next two lopped off the feet. And with the two final flourishes of the blade, the legs were expertly detached from the hips, thereby reducing that was was once a man to nothing more than a torso, a decapitated head, and a collection of limbs, all weltering in a mass of blood-soaked flesh. The end. You know what the worst part of that for me was the calves for some reason. It was like the calf muscles fell away. Yeah. Ah. Sick. My calves are pretty loose as it is. I do not have like glorious calves in the slightest. They're pretty gelatinous. Mm-hmm. I can see that happening. Yeah. How they would fall away. Yeah. How they wiggle away as it were. Yuck. <laughs> so yeah. Well, that was horrible. Thank was you very grim. much. Yeah, I feel like I'm the one that always like rains on people's parade. <laughs> you bring the tone down. Yeah, <laughs> it's like we were having fun, but then she started talking. <laughs> she keeps talking. <laughs> no, I think we we have both had some nasty subjects that weren't overly laughable. Yeah, rather unsavory. Yeah, but um. Well, hopefully next week we can make fun of someone's misery. Although we have been doing that throughout this whole execution thing. Yeah. Or at least I have been. Yeah, I mean, ice cream sandwich. I think you just want an ice cream sandwich. Uh, yeah. Or an ice burger, as we call them. <laughs> they go, You call them burgers? Yeah, but it's like a play on words. Like it's an iceberg. Iceburger. Oh. Can you go to the store and get me some? No. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, guess what time it is? Is it time for a listener story? Listen to story <laughs> time. Give it to me straight. All right. This is from Bubbles9512. Sick. They say, I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a her. I'm just trying to double check. They didn't specify. So I'm going to say them. A few years back, my husband and I owned this beautiful house. Everything was perfect about it. I've always been sensitive when it comes to the paranormal. Seeing, hearing, etc. 
So a few months after moving into this home, I started feeling as if I was always being followed around the house by someone, despite being home alone with my three-month-old daughter. As the months passed, the activity grew. And one day, I was sitting in the living room on the couch, and I could hear as if someone was walking down the hallway, dragging their hand down the wall as they were getting closer to where I was. The footsteps and dragging stopped at the end of the hallway and out of nowhere I could feel the cushion beside me on the couch move down so when I had looked over there was an indent on the couch like someone was sitting next to me. I obviously jumped up a little startled but when I went to feel it the entire cushion was freezing cold and when I moved my hand the indentation on the couch was gone. Then on another occasion my husband and I were just crawling my husband and I were just crawling into bed. <laughs> like they were just crawling. Yeah, that's, that's what, what we do on Sunday. That's what I read. My husband and I were just crawling. I was like, uh <laughs> <laughs> Then on another occasion, my husband and I were just crawling into bed <laughs> fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> You ready? Then on another occasion, my husband and I were just crawling into bed and from our bedroom we could hear the kitchen cupboards opening and shutting repeatedly. I ran to the kitchen thinking someone was in the house but nothing was there and two of the cupboards were open. So I shut them and went back to the room just for it to happen all over again. This kept happening throughout the night but it was only that night and it never happened again. And that is her story. That is their story. My bad. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a poltergeist. That does sound like um, like poltergeist activity, but not the invisible someone sitting next to the person on the couch. It could be. You think? I think yeah. it sounds more like just a residual thing. No, because like a, a poltergeist or um, infestation, um, depending on who you ask is just um it could be spirits or demons just manipulating uh the environment around whoever their focus is Mm. Mm -hmm. well i didn't actually mean residual i just meant it sounded like to me like someone maybe who used to live in the house before you know yeah maybe just walking down the hall sitting down keeping an eye on what's going on you know yeah so that's this week's episode. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back next week with something else. I don't know what. Yeah. Not executions anyway. Yeah. We're done with that for now. But, um, well, this is Friday. Yeah. And we're not going to be back next week. I mean, we are, but <laughs> we're basically going to be back tomorrow and the next day. Yeah. So in the spirit of all things Halloween, we are going to release a bonus episode boner episode bonus episode (laughs) (laughs) for halloween night so and especially because all of ireland is in lockdown at the minute so hopefully this gives someone something to do yeah take their mind off being locked inside their house all on their own this is for you ireland yeah this for you (laughs) Um, so yeah stay tuned and all that jazz make sure to go follow us on Instagram Twitter Facebook YouTube Uh, find us on whatever 
podcast app it is that you use. If you can't find us on there, let us know. We'll get on there. Yeah, if you can't find us on the podcast platform that you're listening to us right now on, I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> Shut it. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's it. Thanks, everybody, for the continued support. And make sure to send us in your listener stories. And uh, for the love of God, tell me what my Halloween costume is. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> I have it. Give me a fucking guess. All right. Somebody, please help Just Dulce guess. out here. <laughs> All right. So I guess we'll see you guys tomorrow. Yeah. Happy Halloween, creeps. Happy Halloween, y'all. Bye. Bye.